Yeah, when I was a kid, I got really interested in electronics and then shocked myself because I was taking apart stuff on mains. Were you shocked because you were so good? Oh, you mean no, physically no. shocked? Well, oh, I get it. So, so my problem was is that I didn't have much stuff, right? I'd go over and hang, at the hang out at the radio shack when I dumpster dive for throwing away electronics. I'd take them apart, but one time I got this fluorescent kind of like fluorescent light bulb thing. I just started taking it apart. I had it plugged in. Oh my God, I got zapped so hard Ooh. by that stuff. <laughs> that was, I was, I was dumb. Pure CS, oh, so much, so much less painful. What's up everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. All right, welcome back to Beam Radio, everybody. I'm Steven Nunez, and today we've got an incredible show. If you're interested in nerves or hardware, this is the place to be. Uh, joining us, our hosts are Lars Dickman. Hello. And Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody from Chattanooga. And we have Alex Kutmos. Hey, hey. <laughs> no howdy howdy this week. Make sure you send your questions over at, uh, at Beam Radio 1 on Twitter, hashtag process mailbox. We'll pick up your question. And if you pick your question, you get a shirt. Thanks to MacBull for submitting our first fan question uh, in the beamray.io process mailbox, macbull.net, that's M-A-Q-B-O-O-L.net. Uh, this week's question comes to us from Pascal. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, Lech, Lechen Diner. Sorry. Uh, what did you read slash watch to get to the aha moment understanding of OTP? Yeah, so this is interesting for me. Uh, I'm interested to hear what the rest of you have to say, but I was actually doing a couple of mini classes with Eric Meadows Johnson, and he broke OTP down into just the basic abstractions. We built a counter. I think a lot of you have built a counter, but, but we built it with just processes and message passing first. And once I had it in those base abstractions, OTP started clicking for me. I'm curious to what the rest of you have to say. Yeah, so for me, I read the, let me look at my bookshelf here, it was the little, the little Elixir and OTP guidebook. And that was a good book. And uh, at first, I, I felt like I was just looking at the text, writing the code and not getting it. But after, after kind of taking what I did in the book and then trying to make some of my own like OTP kind of uh, fundamentals and constructs, it really made more sense for me at that point. So I'd say read a book, but then definitely get your hands dirty after the fact. Yeah, there's, there's no other way to really get these, these concepts kind of uh, solidified. Yeah, so my experience is somewhat similar. I don't really, oh, sorry, Bruce. I don't really read programming books <laughs> to any significant extent. It's like, I'm halfway through code complete and have been there for the last decade or so, but I definitely did watch a lot of conference talks on Elixir before I, before I even started trying it. And I think what really got me interested was the idea of supervision trees. And that was probably because I was dealing with a very, very unstable microservice architecture at the time. And that was some of the stuff I started to dig into when I got my hands dirty. And that sort of requires you to start learning gen serves and stuff. And that's sort of where, where I think I found my aha moment for OTP, but I couldn't pin it down, honestly. Yeah, for me, it was interesting. I, I, there are times where you have aha moments and then there are times where you sort of just fall into understanding. 
Um, I remember going into uh, getting into like gen servers and supervisors, just like repeating the syntax and just writing it going and going. And it just did not make sense. But I guess when you learn a bunch, like you, you learn regularly in this field, you realize it just keeps showing up and things eventually get into the right place in your brain. So I was like, if I keep showing up, I'll get it at some point. And now gen servers and supervisors and all the strategies are just second nature, but I didn't have the, ah, this was it. So I kind of, yeah, fell into, it was an, a molasses of understanding for me. Thank you for that question, Pascal. We have another question for all hosts. Can you talk about your production war stories in Elixir? Was there some hairy issue you solved and what tools and techniques did you use to solve it? This comes from Joel Kemp, Mr. Joel Kemp on Twitter. I got a good one for this. Um, so we were ingesting a lot of uh, binary data in uh, one of our microservices and we're using GenStage. And uh, you know, luckily at the time we had uh, you know, Prometheus and Grafana running and we would notice some of our Elixir instances were just you know, ramping up on memory usage and uh, not coming down anytime soon. So we could, you could obviously see that there was some sort of memory leak. And this was still early on in my Elixir career. I was like, oh, WTF is this? You know, this is a, you know, this is a functional language. There should be no memory leaks. Uh, so then I picked up um, uh, Fred Herber's uh, Elixir and Anger book. And there's a nice section of memory leaks in, uh, uh, on the beam. And uh, binary memory leaks was a very interesting section. And then I reached for a tool called Recon. And I was able to kind of pinpoint what processes were actually leaking memory, and uh, you know to kind of limp that service along till uh, till slow hours of the day, you can you can manually kind of garbage collect and, and clean stuff up. So yeah, recon and uh, Erlang and Anger I think are two phenomenal tools that I would definitely use again in the future. I have a pretty good one for this. So um, I thought that we were just writing this beautiful excellent code. So when our first Elixir production app went out, we just weren't watching it because it was performing so so steadily and, and failing so infrequently, we thought that we were just great Elixir developers. And then and then somebody looked at the logs, right? And and we found out it was crashing every every couple of minutes for from like some some type of error or another. And and we, we just kind of all had our mouths drop open in awe saying, how bad are we that we're not even noticing this stuff? And then so then we had to pick up all of our, our telemetry and measurements and things like that. Yeah, I have a story kind of similar to that. Um, we we built an app uh, in Elixir and it worked fine, um, but we reached out to the great people over at Erlang Solutions, uh, had Francesco come in and kind of walk us through an install of Wombat. And we found a ton of stuff wrong. That was just like memory leaks and things were crashing, but it worked so well that it, it was just fine. We wound up fixing it, you know, so that you wouldn't have, you know, these bloated processes to die and take up a bunch of memory, but it still worked and was really performant. So uh, yay, I guess. Um, cool, thanks again to Joel Kemp for that question at Mr. Joel Kemp on Twitter. Uh, Bruce, I hear Groxio's release. It's scheduled for next year. What's what's going on? Yeah, it's been pretty interesting because we've, we've started to explore machine learning in Julia for, for data science elements and then, again in FluxML, we're going to chase that with Elixir NX. By far, this was the most requested topic. And we've released the rest of the schedule for the next calendar year. We're going to talk about mostly composition and design of Ecto and applications. That ought to be a lot of fun. And then after that, we're going to shift back into the Julia language, and we're going to work with computer vision. 
for the rest of the year, we're going to spend some time bolstering the content on the rest of the existing modules. I know that we have some things planned for NURBS. We have some things planned for Live View. We'll probably work in a Surface video. And we have a few more things like the base patterns that we want to work back into Elixir, primarily the CRC framework that we teach in the Live View book. Excellent. So Bruce has our uh, topic for today. Bruce, why don't you take over? Yeah, so today we're really lucky to have Frank Hunlith, one of the creators of the NURBS framework. Hello. And Hello. what I'd like to talk about is the idea of technology adoption. A lot of us have been thinking about adoption with the new Elixir index library. And also we've been thinking about the adoption of Elixir with from the perspective of LiveView. So I want to talk about some of the ways that that you've managed to help nerves get off the ground. And one of the things that kind of struck me was when, when we first got to know each other, you invited me to, to actually speak at one of the local users groups. And that was, which users group was that, Frank? That was uh, Elixir DC. So I, I live right outside Washington DC. So that's, that's my local, one of my local ones. Yeah, so one of the things that I noticed was that you spend a lot of time locally supporting those groups. And I was wondering how that relates to NERVS adoption in general. Um, there's, there's a lot of things going around where you actually actively participate communities to, to participate in, in the language and also in the NERVS framework. So I, I guess I have two answers to this question. Number one, I do hang out with the local community. So I, I live kind of in between Baltimore and DC and I, I try to go to their um, meetups um, when, when I can. And it's really good to go to them, but very few people at them use, use nerves. So actually that's, that's probably not helping my adoption story, but I really like the people. So I like hanging out there and hearing what they're up to. The other part with nerves is online. I feel like there's a lot more ways that I can reach out, be it through Slack probably the main one and uh, through some of the libraries. I think the nice thing about NERVS is it has a hobbyist community that happens to be fairly vocal and, uh, and active. And so it's kind of fun for me just to enable them. So if there's a problem, it's just enabling kind of like, I don't know, I enjoy it. And I, and I would like to think that that helps get some of the adoption out, at least on the hobbyists. And I think that a lot of the stuff that helps hobbyists eventually helps production users too. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're really onto something. One of the things that I've noticed is that one of the things that we try to do in Groxio is to solve non-trivial problems in a particular programming language. And one of the things that I've seen is that the hardest adoption nuts to crack are always these multidiscipline fields, right? So whether you're talking mm -hmm. about machine learning and then you're talking about a lot of a lot of math and, and a lot of computer science and really a pretty heavy intersection of the two. And, and you have that problem in spades with the NERVS community, right? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the hardware aspect, there, there's just a lot of pieces for people to learn and I think to get comfortable with. Um, whether you're coming from the hardware side, you know, Elixir or LangVMs and you kind of might be a new thing to you, functional programming might be a hurdle. If you're coming from pure software side, then the hardware is a hurdle. And the question of how you, make progress debugging some of these hard problems, depending on which side you're on and getting visibility into them. And I think that's, that's driven a whole lot of nerves uh, work over the past few years, especially coming from my partner, Justin, I mean, more on the user side to be able to get you know, reasonable error messages. Like 
other, you know, the rest of the nurse core team getting docs that show how to do stuff, you know, walkthroughs, you know, a lot of people on this call just helping, helping lower the, uh, the kind of the speed bumps that you hit when you're first getting to it so that you can start getting productive because I think that's where everyone, everyone wants to feel kind of get to that, you know, comfort and uh, productive state with the uh, framework so that they can actually do whatever they really came to do with it. Yeah. So your work on enabling hobbyists is straight up my on-ramp into Elixir. Uh, so the Inky library port that you guys helped me get through with, that was my first serious Elixir project. I played around with Raspberry Pis. I knew Python, so I was working off of a Python version. Um, but yeah, the, the reception in in the Elixir Slack nerves channel is amazing. Uh, it's it's such a delight talking to the people in there. And I think <laughs> at some point, each member of the nerves core team has helped <laughs> on that particular library. <laughs> so That was a particularly fun library. So I don't want to say that we'll always be around to help, but that was a cool library. So these are the e-ink displays, the small e-ink displays that you were working on. And yeah, I think I, there's just something fun about e-ink displays or any display yeah, I, for that matter. I definitely hadn't realized at the time what a nerd snipe e-ink is, but you can see <laughs> yes. like an e-ink project every day on Hacker News basically just because it's e-ink and it's fun. I think the other fun thing is that there are some features, uh, so there are some programs that particularly in pieces of code that particularly look cool in Elixir. And um, when you get to like the binary pattern matchings, that's like one of those aha moments that you're like, oh, wow, this, this code that I'm, I'm looking at this Python or C or whatever other language, and you're looking at all these uh, bitwise AMs, ORs, and whatnot, and then all of a sudden you get a nice binary pattern matching. It's so cool. And it's always fun to watch someone who's you know coming new to the language, or maybe they're not new to Elixir, but they haven't used pattern matching just because it's not as commonly used as other features. And then they see what happens, like that, that light bulb go off in their heads and like, whoa, there's like a really cool way of uh, coding this that's uh, incredibly elegant and easy to read. So I think you had a project that had that. And I think that was fun for a lot of people. Yeah, it was a, it was a good ride. And it's, it's still sort of one of the channels I stick around in just because it's a manageable volume as well. <laughs> I looked in Phoenix, I looked in Ecto and I was like, Peace. I'm out. <laughs> Too much. So you're so, definitely maintaining a good community there. Yeah, I love the idea that that we kind of started this by by enabling the hobbyists, right? But that's not why you decided to get going in nerves in the first place, right? No, no. This is totally not the reason. It's it's always cool to see hobbyists and other people use their work, but that was just not my intention at all. I had uh, um, so if we rewind to when I got started looking at all this stuff, it was, I was working at companies and I was writing a lot of C++. And I was also reading all the Erlang research papers and everything that I could come across on Erlang and looking at, re, looking at how OTP solve problems. And then, you know, if you'd start wondering why do I keep on solving these similar problems in C and C++, why don't I just take the dive, move over to Erlang and, use Erlang in my projects because it fits so well, or the feature set looked like it fit so well. So the reality was that 
I could not embed Erlang in any of my projects in any reasonable timeframe at any company that I've worked for. And this was, this is like over a period of 10 years, whatever spend money on. It was slightly frustrating. So nurse was the, started out as just the experiment. It's like, let me just move this into the style of projects that I'm, that the companies that I work for and the projects I'm on would be amenable to. And then it kind of grew. And of course, uh, when Justin came on, switched to Elixir and the tooling got, got to be very accessible to hobbyists. And then I got to learn what an awesome community the hobbyist community was. And that's that's fantastic. And and so one of the things that's really cool to me is this this kind of transition in the marketplace. And this is how languages and tools are really developed, right? It's not it's not that somebody has a really cool idea. It's that somebody has a really big need. And when when you can start to scratch that, it's just a little bit some magic can happen, right? Yeah. So I, I love the idea of this this binary pattern match and and this being one of the gateway drugs of of nerves, right? So I, I remember how many times that we were kind of working together on the Groxio project and and um, you were saying, well, the details were in the spec sheet, and um, <laughs> so you weren't quite saying RTFM, right? You were saying, hey, uh, this data is all here, and there's a specification of an API, and this is how. This is how you do that, and and then you kind of pointed to like a little couple of a couple of things that I might have been missing, like the the format of the big Indian, little Indian, and and kind of the these bits do this thing. And when you understand that I2C works in this way, that you generally do a request and then get a response, and those are both like send and receive blocks, things get really easy. And so I remember building that binary clock. Um, with with you and and um, you saying well we need this this new chip called a yeah. what was the it constant current driver yeah 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 the constant current driver yeah, yeah yeah and um, then then we started then we started working with this um, with this device and you said and I said how did you pick one you said well I just picked one that supported spy and I said why'd you pick spy and then you pointed me at the circuits dot spy um, interface and it just worked out of the box so that was that was an amazing experience yep yep i think that there's a real hesitation to read you read specs the data sheets for these parts and you know that's something that i've that's come up on nerves a whole lot of times that when you when you're used to other environments these data sheets seem so close to hardware and yeah there are a couple of words in there that are kind of hard to understand um but in the presence of being able to have binary patterns that match almost match verbatim, like the little blurbs of text in the, in the data sheet. I think that they're more approachable to possibly the Erlang Elixir communities than, than maybe other ones because of this, there's more of a match between the language and uh, the stuff written in them. And yeah, I, I think that's a, po a powerful feature of this. We can do things with hardware that uh, may not be exposed in libraries that are the ones that you, um, you have to use in other languages. Yeah, I got to say, it is a really approachable bit of text that uh, Groxio put together, um, well, both of you guys put together. Uh, I think it's very easy to find a blog post that'll show you how to turn a light on and off, but I think that actually building on, you know, focus on that, those focus on that layer, those layers, focusing on actually building something that's kind of complex is, I think, what more of what we need. So it's really exciting to see it uh, written, written well about, um, and I think, I think you guys did a really good job. 
Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. And and so I think that one of the things that's becoming clear to me is that one of the things that's needed in in really both the nerves and the elixir community is the the mini book. It's one complex project, and it is one software concept, and it's it's about three or four times as long as a typical blog entry. And when you when you get that, then it's it's something that that is easily digestible, and it's something that that you can actually take on with um, without like a whole lot of experience with a little bit of support. So I'm really excited about this line of of NERVS project books that we're working on together, Frank. And me too. And I'm excited about the clock. The clock is cool. The clock is, so uh, I, I just want to say one of the things that I really liked about the clock, so this was your idea for a sin, but, um, well, I liked a few things, but it's like a thing that you actually use. Like you put it on yourself and it's like always there. I almost always see it whenever I see a video of you. I love things that get, actually get used. It's not so much stuff that seems like it's like a little little hobby project that's maybe one and done, like you get an LED to blink, but you're not gonna put a blinking LED on yourself and leave it there for, you know, for the next few months. Whereas, whereas the clock uh, definitely works. Um, but I also think it, it showed a lot of the examples and you, I was already a believer in a lot of the work that you'd done on CRC, but I thought that it applied surprisingly well to the clock, to building the clock. And I like that because that's, uh, that kind of gave a, a very, you know, a simpler, simpler way of, of getting started with a hardware project. And it totally applies to big projects, right? It's like, like you don't appreciate, I don't know if you appreciate that uh, model of building apps until you get to a, a bigger project, but it really applied well on the clock. And so I was really happy to see and hope, hopefully that will encourage more people to develop, you know, that kind of style. So the CRC is, is really just this idea that if you look at a pipe, there's the, the whole thing is getting to a point where you can do this convenient computation, right? So the first C is a constructor. So it takes convenient inputs and then makes like a convenient, um, a convenient form or type for computation. And then you have a bunch of reducers that essentially do a little bit of work at a time. And then when it's time to consume something, you have something called a converter that converts it for, com for computation. But one of the things that you mentioned, Frank, is that this, this way of thinking, especially when, when you pair it with things like OTP in NERVS, um, it was really pretty powerful for you. And it right, actually- Right, right. I think that maybe it's, it's worthwhile mentioning that the where, where, where the direction that's really easy to go when you're programming nerves, and that's to interact directly with hardware, step one, and write these long functions that have all these side effects with hardware. And you start going down that path. And I mean, you see stuff work, which is great. And then maybe a week later or so you want, you want to change something. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, I have to, I'm, I'm retesting with hardware all the same. This, I, my, I have side effects that extend everywhere. Um, this is very common. Like you see this a lot because it's, it's easy to get started and rewarding, but it doesn't fit into this happy place. Well, I guess that's the other thing that your book talks about is the uh, is separating out the functional core. You know, that's, that is super helpful for these big projects. I want to say the other thing that I really like about it, and that's that you got to use a constant current driver because We've gotten a step back past taking a GPIO with a resistor, going to an LED, doing blinker, to actually doing something that um, is more 
applicable to a professional use. So it's so yeah, we do use, professionally still have circuits that use resistors and LEDs, but it's a small amount, and the constant current drivers get used more frequently, um, so that you can vary brightness more easily, so that you can um, keep well the, a constant brightness. So LEDs. Um, have variation, they dim over time a little bit. So I guess, uh, and I speak to this, is that my previous constant current project that that I was on was uh, one for a medical device. We use that constant current driver very sp specifically to direct a certain number of almost, you know, we'd almost measure this at the photon level into someone's eyes. You know, it's kind of like you can think of the disease that we were looking at responded to a certain number of photons that hit the retina. So so that that kind of circuitry used, I mean, this was a fancier chip, but it gets it gets used in pretty high-end devices. And you know, we got to use it in the clock. So that was fun. Yeah, that was really cool. So so the idea is that each one of these books is does like one one project. This was a clock and and has one concept. This was design and layers. And the idea is that you could run one project three ways, right? You can run it in IEX and you can run it with your tests, and then you could also run it in, in the context of the application. And Alex, I'm going to out your book now. So now that means you have to produce and you're going to have to release something because we're talking about it on the air. So Alex is working on a weather station book that's essentially has is loosely based on the sensor hub that we built on Groxio. You want to tell us a little bit about that and, and about how, um, how you and Frank are evolving the design for this project. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, so uh, yeah, like you said, uh, working on the, the weather station uh, project, actually, I think maybe like two weeks ago, threw out a little bit of a teaser on uh, on Twitter. So I have my uh, my laptop uh, next to all the NERVS uh, hardware and you can see all the uh, the time series data uh, from the NERVS device making its way into a Phoenix application. Uh, we'll put the we'll put the tweet in the, uh, the show notes. But uh, yeah, the idea is to kind of take this in a direction where you can have these remote NERVS devices. And uh, in a, a lot of IoT applications these days, it's all about capturing data in a remote uh, environment and then kind of sending it off for, for further data processing uh, um, somewhere else. So that's, uh, that's kind of where we're taking this project is you know, trying to build a real world IoT device and sending all this data somewhere else for long-term long -term storage and, and visualization and, uh, and, and data processing after the fact. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I've had a lot of fun building the, uh, the project and, and Frank's been awesome in helping me out with my uh, silly questions. So just a disclaimer here, I have helped Alex almost zero. Like this is, he has done so much. He, he made progress extremely fast. It was really cool to watch. So I think what I do is I, I, I helped you pick a, you know, a couple sensors. I recommended a couple sensors for you. I think that was almost the extent of my help. I uh, know you, you helped me out quite a bit. I think you're, I think you're being a little modest here, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you helped me get started on, you know, what, what sensors to pick. Uh, I think I, I think I was having some some issues with nerves. You helped me. Uh, you unblocked me there. So uh, yeah, cool. you you, uh, you helped out uh, tremendously. But uh, yeah, the book is is coming along nicely and should be out soon. I hope. Yeah. So the the whole the whole premise is that these these books are so nerves a full length nerves book is a lot to take on and a huge part of it is staying unblocked right and. One of the things that we can do with this book series is that we can kind of get some of the, the constant feedback that has to go on in early projects. If we could kind of get that down on paper and something that's easy to understand, 
And we could do that in the context of good patterns with, with help from somebody in the software side. And we could do that with a hardware expert that can keep the, keep the readers unblocked. And, and when we're done, we, we basically are able to teach not just a project, which is kind of something that hobbyists like, right? Is a, an end-to-end project guide, but also uh, good design techniques. So, that, so we're really excited about this series. Yeah, and, and and to kind of further that uh, you know that kind of spirit there, um, like as I was building this uh, this sensor hub and 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 pushing all this this data to a time series database, I, it felt like I could I could take this to production. And so you know maybe a question for you, Frank, like uh, what are people building in production and and deploying to production with NERVs, and you know what industries does this kind of span? You mentioned uh, you know medical devices, but uh, I could very so- easily see applications in automotive and other stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the a common gateway devices like the one that 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 you're working on, you're just taking sensors, maybe connecting with some motorized thing. Those kind of things are are very popular with nerves because um, it would be in factories. So like early on, Latote was an early adopter to nerves, and they used it to, uh, to help automate their warehouses, their clothing warehouses. But other people are using it, just putting these nurse devices inside factories to do various things. Sometimes it's as simple as monitoring temperature and interfacing with some web app that they've written. And sometimes it's more complicated than it's actually hooked up to help, like they're building a de- building another device and it's hooked up to that device and it runs tests on those devices or kind of orchestrates the process of turning that device into the pieces that it starts out with into a fully programmed and calibrated device that could be shipped. So that's one side. I think one surprise for, well, I've had a couple surprises on, on domains that have used nerves. One's the farming one, right? So FarmBot uses it. So if you, you want to do some automated farming at your house, you can get there through the FarmBot, but it's also in more industrialized farming. So it's, there are companies that are putting these nerves devices in to monitor pallets of plants that, that get grown and then harvested as, you know, through the cycle, you know, when, you know, controlling the water supply, monitoring various aspects of the temperature, humidity to make sure that everything's okay, you know, have, having a camera hooked up to see how they're growing, you know, and, and sending just back, um, back metrics to, you know, someplace keeping a track of them as they make their way through this, uh, through this indoor farm. So that was that was an unexpected one. Say the other unexpected ones for me is the uh, been the ones in in boats. Like that was uh, Rose Point putting those in a lot of ships, um, like tugboats, towboats. That was a surprise. And that, but it's similar in mechanism in that it's gathering measurements from a lot of sensors around the boats, pulling them to a central location, which is the nearest device, and then exporting the you know data in aggregate or after some computation to perhaps the captain's chair, you know, to a terminal there. I think the, you know, just to some, uh, some places just use it because it uses Elixir and they have developers using Elixir, right? That's, that's like a kind of a neat thing. You know, you have some, um, have a team that's used to Phoenix or, or maybe they're more comfortable with the higher level tools and they have a small hardware te- need for their business. And it's kind of a, a low, uh, an easy interpoint into programming hardware for that group of developers. So regardless of what the industry is. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And I think it's something that we see kind of come up again and again in the Elixir space where, 
we have the tools at our disposal to kind of jump to another domain pretty easily. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, to bring up LiveView again, like if you want to make a simple reactive app, you could jump from, you know, writing a Phoenix app to using LiveView and I have a reactive app. And uh, I think, I think Nervous has kind of done the same thing with, with hardware where it's, it was, it was tough to approach it before. You have some, uh, you know, some nice uh, utilities that you're disposing out in the, in a language that you're familiar with. And you can be productive, and you can write some really cool stuff with you know just a you know a slight learning curve over you know vanilla elixir and, and stuff. And I, I just want to add that there's um, there may be an aspect of hardware that people don't appreciate. Sometimes uh, when you think about a hardware project that has one sensor, you know, say say it does needs this. This is a trivial example, but um, say you just need to sense um, the the amount of light in a room, right? You can start thinking about this project and you're like, okay, what's the best piece of hardware device to sense the amount of light in this room? And that's how you go about your decisions. But that's not really how it works because what you don't, what, what's not obvious in the beginning is that that light sensor to do stuff, that's a very small piece of code, but the code to orchestrate how you get the measurements back to a server, how to manage this device, how to do, how to, um, to manage everything else that interacts do business logic if you have to have that. That's like a lot of code. And sometimes that's like the most significant part of the code on the project. And so if you, um, when you go out to make these devices, you wouldn't want to necessarily um, have that light sensor drive the implementation hardware and implementation language when 90% of your code is probably gonna be, it might be some business logic management thing. And I think that's, I think that's the one of the big cases for Elixir is that makes that that potentially large section of code that you have to write may have to write for our device into an easier to manage um, robust um, form. And I think the importance is just to kind of accept the fact that a lot of these projects just have an unbelievable amount of operations and administrations type of stuff that Elixir just works really well for. Yeah, I can remember doing the photo booth with the uh, with the mentoring project that that some of some of you worked on me with and. So I remember having the same experience looking at the logs after our conference <laughs> to that one production. I mean, there were, there were crashes all over the place and nobody nobody actually realized that because the, the thing just kind of, it crashed, kept working, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Pretty amazing. That, that is like the, that's a big, that's one of those big ahas when you get to Elixir and Erlang when you realize that, oh my gosh, I just shipped this thing. Not only did I shift it, it's been in prod for like a month, maybe longer. And what is it doing? Like no one noticed this. And this is an unbelievable thing. Like we, like, uh, I don't know, we've shipped stuff at my work that I'm like so embarrassed because, you know, these crashes, but the thing recovers itself and some, and then it manifests itself was like, oh, it kind of took a little longer in this one instance. And in longer, it was like 10 seconds longer. And that was kind of annoying to me. And I'm like, okay, good. Then, well, that's not something I'm going to interrupt my weekend to look into. And then, you know, when you get back to it, you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? This is like unbelievable. And I'm going to keep this to myself because no one will believe me that the thing worked after this and that will be fixed right away. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing I'm echoing a lot of the experience from you all just based on the beginning, but uh, that, that feeling's real. That is unexpected benefit of this whole ecosystem. Just running an application that can be actively on fire and you didn't notice. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's I sometimes, know. <laughs> sometimes concerning. Yes, but the option yes. is probably you shipped it, you didn't notice, and then it was on fire and broken. <laughs> so, yeah, and it's not like we don't test this stuff. <laughs> so I, this stuff just happens. I mean, that's 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 kind of uh, the thesis of of Erlang. So um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is, is that the whole ecosystem is built on this idea of gen servers and supervision. And it is really nice that, you know, the stuff that happens to me, like this happens to other people. These happen, I pull in a lot of third-party libraries in my projects, which I'm sure everyone does. And, uh, you know, I can't review all that code. I can't, you know, I can go, you know, make best guesses on how good a library is going to go, have some experience, you know, do some integration tests, put it through the works. But, uh, it's such a nice um, feeling when, you know, that, that random blip happens and yeah, it's really ugly at the time, but it doesn't force you to have this uh, um, all hands uh, on deck uh, moment to fix the problem. And it kind of defers it so that, so that, uh, you know, it can either be worked out with the author of that third-party library, or maybe we can make a patch to, you know, the, the following week. It's, it's so nice. It's, it's something that I think is, uh, is really a feature of the Elixir and Erlang communities, the homogeny with how we build stuff on these OTP um, abstractions, which uh, I think is is really good, and uh, I think it, uh, I think uh, we should promote it more as a community. So one of the things that's interesting to me is that the some of the patterns that you use as a hobbyist and some of the ones that you might use as um, as a professional are a little bit different. Like for example, I can remember when we started the project, I did a lot of configuration in the just config, and then we started taking that apart and in using Poncho projects. So can you talk about some of those patterns that might be different for a hobbyist and, and for a professional? There are a couple areas. The uh, I think one thing that on the professional areas when you start deploying your projects into remote places, that that kind of the fear that you might have to actually physically go over to where that remote place is, um, starts uh, becoming pretty real. Whereas when you're a hobbyist, that's just like, oh, let me just go over to the device that's at the other end of the house, reflash an SD card, done. So I'd say that the, the that particular fear drives a lot of work on the um, professional projects, at least the ones I've been involved on, be it, um, I'm gonna send a new firmware upgrade. Like how do I firmware upgrade? These devices, right? That's that's actually a problem because a lot of devices are behind firewalls and whatnot. Um, so that was that's kind of the uh, motivation behind Nerf's Hub, and there are other solutions that are similar to that. But how do I recover from me putting something really wrong on that device? And so, like these examples, well, eventually, I think every organization has their moment, or at least the people in the organization have had some experience where they might have a fleet. And hopefully it's a small when this happens. And so as you push these firmware updates out, you, you don't do the whole fleet at once. That's that's like that would be scary, very scary. But you you, you roll these out incrementally. And uh, if you don't have this recovery path or some way of failing back that you haven't built in, then you start seeing these things go down. You can kind of watch your firmware update system just killing devices going out. And one time this happened and and in a project I was remotely on, and the guy just ran over to the firmware update server and pulled the plug. Like, luckily, this is this is back when you actually had the servers in your company, you know, where you could run over to the server room, open up the door, 
yanked the plug and pulled the plug to the machine as he saw this thing happening. Not that I wouldn't have had other instances to point to, but that one was, that was, that made it pretty real. So the thought process is, it's just like, what, you know, what makes a device okay? And how does the device on its own choose to be it's okay? And then how many ways can you figure out how to get back to that firmware update server if you're not okay, right? That's like, that's like the, the process you go to. And there's, there's a lot of thinking here, probably a little bit much for this, this call, but like the, it's, I would bet that most people doing this for hobbyists just totally skip on this part. And NERFS helps quite a bit in this area, but a lot of things are turned off by default. So it's something that you need to turn on uh, and, and kind of like make decisions based on what makes most sense for you and your company. Going to your other point, just uh, which is what are the other hobbyists and versus production cases? It's more, I think maintenance is kind of a, a big concern. I think this is for pretty much any Elixir project, a professional one, you're kind of at least thinking a little bit about how future you or um, future next you is, is going to keep this thing running. So one of the things that, that I remember was one of the things we did very quickly was we we built out this implementation for um, for public subscribe and we we set it down on top of PG two and we did it in this horribly insecure way and we did it with an outdated library and then Alex comes along a couple of minutes later and and replaces that with the updated um, PG which which was went very quickly and almost seamlessly that was pretty cool. I, th I think it's, I personally think it's amazing how much um, PG and early distribution makes things so easy on, and I guess on the, on the hobbyist side, since I can't use those for on the professional side of my projects, but uh, boy, do I want to. <laughs> so the other thing that was pretty cool was, was we were trying to work out how to present some of these details. We, we were kind of talking about the other end of, we left the implementation with just publish subscribe, and then Alex kind of jumped in and and plugged in Promex. And how was that experience, Alex? So it was really good. Yeah, I mean, um, as I was working on the device, I was kind of thinking in like a real world setting, kind of like Frank. Like I, I wish I could use just regular Erlang distribution, but if you're operating over the public internet, I mean, obviously that's kind of a kind of a, a no go. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was really easy. You know, given that you have the whole foundation of you know Elixir and uh, and you know all the tools in the ecosystem at your disposal, you could really easily, you know, use uh, let's say Finch publish 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 this stuff over HTTP, or you can pull in uh, you know MQTT and you can publish this stuff over uh, you know message broker. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, kind of you know, kind of going back to the original points that Frank was making, it's it's. It's not about the the small sensor that you need data from. It's all that other kind of boilerplate and uh, and foundation work that you need in order to get that small piece of sensor data off to where you really uh, really want it. And I think I think that's where you know Elixir really really shines and, and makes things you know super easy. And one thing I was uh, uh, talking to Frank about was it's all good and you know it's all good in your in your house when you have Wi-Fi and you can make your Raspberry device hop on you know the the LAN over there and send your data to your server. But uh, when you're operating in a remote environment, you know, what do you do? And he pointed me at a really nice uh, uh, library that's in the NERVS ecosystem. What was it again, uh, Frank? That's uh, Vintage, vintage Net for networking. And then there's Vintage Net um, Cellular. There we go. That's the one. That library basically makes it easier to connect 
to different kinds of LTE modems. So that's been the current focus right now on the LTE side because LTE, there's uh, CAT1, CAT M1 are kind of popular on the more commercial use for connecting to the cellular network. And the hardware is available for that. So it's uh, it's a little bit tricky to buy now as a hobbyist because you have to buy like a Raspberry hat and other stuff. It's kind of pricey, but uh, if you're doing this production use um, in larger volume, it's it's pretty easy to get, or relatively easy to build. <laughs> I shouldn't say easy to get. Right now, there's a component shortage as we as we tape this. So yeah, that's that's the only one thing I noticed as well. Because as soon as you sent me the link, I was like, oh, I should I should probably buy one of these uh, yeah, these things. But uh, everyone everyone's sold out. But uh, I could definitely see in my future having like a completely uh, unplugged nerves project, probably just like sitting in my car. Because ever since yeah. my ever since yeah. my race car was stolen like four or five years ago, it's always been on my to-do list to have like a little black box that I build myself and put in my car, and I could always keep track of where it is. Oh my gosh, just having devices connect up to cellular is so nice because it's not like you're trying to figure out what's wrong with this SSID or password wrong. They move, they still work. It's like everything's automatically provisioned with one gotcha, and they cost money. So <laughs> that's, that's the thing. You, you have to pay for that uh, luxury, but it is a nice luxury, I have to say. Yeah, just to close out the, the hobbyist versus pro um, topic, I think, I think there's a touch of sort of prosumer, the prosumer of building your Raspberry Pi uh, like weekend project is to use nerves because you get a lot of the luxuries and coolness that the pros really need, but you don't really need it. Like you could just hack it together with Python and Raspbian. But honestly, it's a little bit more convenient when you can just SSH push firmware rather than like <laughs> SSH in and sit and edit the scripts on your device. It's like a good excuse to just use cooler tools. And for many, many developers, I think Elixir sort of provides much more to cool tools than they ever need. And I think Nerves mirrors that. Uh, but I wanted to also just check in with you. You maintain a lot of projects around Nerves <laughs> and sort of circuits and Elixir in general. How can our listeners best help out with that? Oh my gosh, that, would, that is so nice for you to ask. So yeah, so number one, I do maintain a lot of projects. I do get a lot of help from the core team, from people in the community too. It is really nice to have more help though. So if I, and it's like simple things, like I wish I could uh, convey the small doc fixes. If you've got, if you've taken one of any one of the projects and set it up, it is almost, a certainty that I will have messed something up. Hopefully, maybe others will have gone to and fixed it, but it's like something small. Like, even if it's small, don't, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate in sending a PR up that corrects it. I mean, I love those. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it does double. It, uh, number one, improves the docs. And number two, there's going to be someone else that hits the same problem. So I think doc updates are a real easy way to uh, uh, maybe um, get your foot wet submitting something. Once you get past in a certain level, like, you know, using this stuff, I think that, uh, I, I mean, they're, they're missing features, right? They're missing features, issues. Um, sometimes I don't know about them. Sometimes I do, and I've, I've totally forgotten to post an issue about it or, or whatnot. I mean, it's just, I, I can't understate, I'm a human too, and, and I forget a whole lot of this stuff. 
So if you think something's missing or if anyone thinks anything's missing and they're in your interest in like helping out a little bit, please post something. I mean, I try to get back to a lot of this stuff quickly. Um, and I think that, I think I speak for the rest of the nurse core team too, because I don't maintain all the projects, even though it does look like I maintain a lot. It's just, I mean, we're all in the same boat and everyone's busy. And uh, I think the other thing is just knowing people use our, a certain library is helpful. Um, it's uh, some, some libraries kind of don't need much maintenance and then I kind of forget about them. You know, so it's like nurse time libraries, they kind of just run in the background, but it's not like they couldn't be improved. If you use them, let me know. I mean, if you, I mean, it's, it's very encouraging me when I hear that someone uses them and it, it will give me a little bit more energy to kind of make a pass, maybe clean something up, maybe to add a feature that's been bugging me. Yeah, psychologically, I think that people need to hear positive feedback almost at a, at a 10x clip versus negative feedback to, to really feel good about the work that they're doing. So um, so that so just just saying something to to people that are making a difference to you is is a, a huge is a huge thing. And so I'd encourage our, our readers to pick three people that that have done something that that you depend on and tweet about it and then ask others to do the same. It's a it's a great idea. Also consider making videos because you know not everybody reads. Oh videos would be awesome. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'd love that. Well I want to thank Frank for coming on. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on Beam Radio. We had a really good time. Big special thanks to MacBull again for submitting our first fan question. Uh, make sure you keep the signal going. Follow us at Beam Radio One on Twitter and make sure you tag your questions with hashtag process mailbox. I want to thank our sponsor, Groxio, career fuel for programmers. See you next time. Just to prep you, you all, Halloween is like an awesome holiday for putting <laughs> nurse devices into random stuff. Oh my God, yes. So, yes just yeah. throwing it out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't that the isn't that the point? With all this stuff, especially, yeah. I think I, this is why I learned through quarantine is that the, not to underrate having fun on some of the stuff that you do. Right, right, right. <laughs>